Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome, everyone, to the GDUI uh, session on the matching process. This is our third session so far at this year's ACB convention, and we're really excited uh, to have people join us. And uh, this session will also be recorded and be available uh, later on podcast. So um, I am Maria Hansen, and I am the GTUI program chair for the GTUI portion of the convention. This is our third uh, session in this early Zoom-only part of the convention. I want to introduce Sarah Calhoun, who is the president of Guide Dog Users, Inc. Well, thank you, Maria. And thank you, everyone, for joining us, whether you're on Clubhouse or ACP Media or have called in uh, the webinar. And we appreciate um, our speaker, uh, Alyssa from Leader Dog, who will be giving this presentation. And I, I do want to thank Maria Hansen for doing such a wonderful job uh, scheduling these programs that uh, we have had at the beginning of the uh, convention. And uh, if you've missed some, like she said, they will be available on podcast. But Thank you, everyone, for coming, and I will turn it back over to Maria. Thank you. Today's topic is uh, the unique matching process, and our presenter is Elizabeth Otis, uh, yes, from uh, Leader Dog, and she's a guide dog and mobility instructor at GDMI, and she's the outreach specialist. She'll she'll talk about what uh, the process is for determining how to match a leader dog to a client and what goes into that complex process. And I really want to thank Elisa now, and I will thank her later. And by the way, I also want to thank our host, Diane and our streamer, Herbie, I forgot to do that, uh, for helping us out here too. But Alyssa, welcome, 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 and thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. So just to start off, um, and I'll kind of go a little bit more into myself uh, in a moment here, but we're going to talk about the unique matching process um, that we have at Leader Dogs for the Blind. We understand that this matching process can be slightly different depending on what organization you're getting a dog from. Um, so of course, we're only speaking for leader dogs. Um, however, a lot of the information I'm sure does transfer over. So on the screen here, we have our Leader Dogs for the Blind logo, which is the profile of a cartoon dog wearing a harness. And around him is a compass that has an arrow both uh, pointing up as well as to the right and left. And it says leader dogs for the blind underneath it. And then the unique matching process. Next is a, uh, a presenter slide. So a photo of myself. Um, I've got about a little longer than shoulder length black hair wearing a maroon 
long sleeve shirt, black pants. And then I have a lovely yellow Labrador wearing a leader dog um, canine ambassador vest on as well. And so like, um, like you guys heard before, I'm an outreach specialist at Leader Dogs for the Blind. I've been with Leader Dog now 11 years this past week, actually. Um, and so I currently work in the marketing department and I get to do presentations such as this. But the first 10 years of my uh, role at Leader Dog was being a guide dog mobility instructor. So I was somebody who got the dogs from their puppy raisers worked with them for four months, matched them with a client, and then taught the client how to use that dog successfully um, before graduation. Next, I have a slide that has our logo again, and it also has our mission. So our mission is to empower people who are blind or visually impaired with lifelong skills for safe and independent daily travel. And before I get into that matching process, I'm just going to really quickly tell you that we do have um, a multitude of services that we offer. So I know we are leader dogs for the blind. So people, of course, expect, you know, nothing but dogs. Um, but we also have an orientation and mobility program. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, feel free to reach out to leader dog. Having a guide dog or ending up with a guide dog does not have to be your ultimate goal in order to receive our programs and services. Um, we have 11 certified orientation and mobility st uh, staff members, and we're also doing in-home orientation and mobility as well. And then, of course, we have our teen summer camp, which is actually starting up, well, tomorrow, I guess. Um, where we have youth come from all over the United States and Canada, and it's one week long with 16 and 17 year olds. Of course, we sprinkle in some, you know, learning and orientation mobility skills, but a lot of it is just having fun, zip lining and, and talent shows and whatnot. Um, next to each thing, so next to our guide dog, we have that side profile of a dog, again, wearing a harness. Next to the words orientation and mobility, we have a stick figure who is walking with a long white cane. And then for teen summer camp, the icon is a little tent, kind of like a teepee. Now for the good stuff, we're going to get into the matching process. So what is the matching process? Matching process is the process of evaluating a dog to determine the best match for a client. On top of that, we also have to identify a client's need in a dog or in a mobility aid. So on the screen, we have a photo of a young man who is walking, it looks like a college campus with his black lab in harness. Um, so like I said, our mission is to provide clients with a safe and independent travel. And so we know that those coming in for a guide dog are hoping that this is going to be a mobility tool that will ultimately enhance their lives and enhance their travel. Um, so the next thing that we're going to kind of go over is a little bit about before what happens before that matching process. So what happens in that training cycle and how do we kind of determine what type of dog or what dog needs to go with what person? I wish that I could say that it was as easy as just putting all of the dog's names in a hat and picking them out. Um, but unfortunately, it's not. Um, you know, in the field, we like to say it's an art, not a science, because it's not something that we can really plug into any sort of formula. Um, a lot of it is knowing the dog, getting to know the client, and also relying on your skills that you've learned by being a GDMI and things that you've seen in your past um, in order to kind of make that perfect match. On the screen, we have a photo of a yellow Labrador Golden Retriever mix um, wearing their harness surrounded by grass, kind of looking up at the camera. 
Um, and so here we're going to kind of talk about the training cycle. So the training cycle at Leader Dogs for the Blind is four months long, approximately. So it's approximately 16 weeks. And that is comprised of four different phases. So um, since there's four phases and it's four months of training, each phase is approximately one month. The first is our foundations training. So this is when the instructor begins to build bonds with the dog. They determine the dog's likes. They determine what motivates them. Um, this is also a time that we're using to assess the skills that they learned from their puppy raiser in puppyhood. So some of their basic obedience skills, um, their soundness, how are they around loud noises, just really getting to know those dogs. Next, we have our basic. So basic is really the building blocks to the guide work. So we are based in Rochester Hills, Michigan, and we have a downtown Rochester training facility that's one mile from our canine development center that we often take, take the dogs to that have both residential training as well as kind of a busy main street. Um, so that's something that we do during basic training. By the end of basic training, you've got your dog in harness, your dog is stopping for curbs, your dog is making turns on their own, um, and then the instructors perform an evaluation on each dog, as well as a blindfold route. So we do multiple blindfold routes throughout training. The first one is in basic. So not only, of course, do you have to trust this dog that is about halfway through training, but you also have to trust the spotter that's behind you to make sure that you guys are staying safe. Um, we like to do this blindfold route because it really gives us a chance to know if we're influencing the dog in any way by using our vision. So as much as we try to not use our vision while we're training these dogs, we know that naturally it's going to happen. Um, and so this is a really good way to kind of put that blindfold on and see, you know, have I been influencing my dog to make the right turns or have I really been slowing down a lot when I'm coming to that curb, which is telling the dog to stop? Um, so it's super, super great information that we can gather from that. Once we do that blindfold route, that's when our matching meetings can kind of begin, which I'll get into in a little bit. Um, but overall, what the matching meetings consist of is the team looks at a list of clients that are on our waiting list, and we look at the dogs that we're doing blindfold evaluations on and see if we can see any good potential matches. And again, I'll go more into that, of course, in a, a few slides here. Next, we have intermediate. So our intermediate is where we really begin to generalize skills to new environments. We're really taking off those training wheels. We're going from downtown Rochester to a bunch of different types of environments. We wanna make sure that they can kind of generalize those skills. So a right turn in Rochester is the same as a right turn in another city or stopping at a curb in Rochester is the same as stopping at a curb in a novel city. Um, the dogs are given increased responsibility. We also increase the complexity of skills. So we might try, you know, open staircases, um, glass elevators, certain things that some dogs may be, you know, a little more hesitant to do. Um, during this time, the team's going to continue matching meetings every two to three weeks to reassess those possible matches that they kind of had in their mind. And then the last month of training is our advanced. This is where match specific training begins. So by this point, we really have a good idea of what client on that wait list we wanna give what dog to. 
So we go to specialized environments that might be individual to each client. So for example, if we have a client that goes to the gym all the time or is a personal trainer, we're going to make sure that we take that dog that we think we're going to give them and we're going to go to somewhere that has a gym. We're going to practice working out with this dog next to us. Um, same with if somebody perhaps lives on a farm, we're going to make sure to get the dog that we have in mind for them to a farm to make sure that they're okay around all of those animals. Ultimately, not all dogs, dogs are going to be successful in every environment, and we want to know that we're setting the dog and the client up for success. Um, once advanced is over, the advanced phase, we go on to our class-ready evaluations, and this is also another blindfold route. Um, this is in a much more complex and novel environment. We've got offset curbs, um, elevators, stairs, a lot more distractions, um, and a lot less controlled of an environment. So to continue on about learning about the dog, um, we're going to talk a little more about our assessments to kind of determine what client we want to give each dog to. So on the screen, we have one of our GDMIs wearing a mindfold, blindfold, so it blocks out all of the light. And she's kneeling down on the ground, hugging a yellow lab in harness. Um, so like I said, there's a minimum of two blindfold routes done with each dog. However, it can be as many blindfold routes as we want in order to feel comfortable. Some of the criteria that we're looking at in the dog when we're doing this is their temperament. Um, so how are they handling somebody who is completely um, wearing that blindfold and not using their remaining vision? How are their social behaviors? How are they when, say, a young kid walks by them um, or a big group of people kind of crowds by them? Um, how are they in the environment? Are they comfortable in that size of environment? Because like I said before, some dogs, you know, every dog is kind of different, just like every person is different. So some dogs will prefer that um, you know, bigger environment, that louder environment, they might thrive in that. Whereas some dogs might say, you know what, that's a little bit too much for me. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing, and it's super important that we look into is the pace and the pull of the dog. So how fast does the dog like to walk? So again, just like humans, we all walk at different paces. I'm told that I have quite the quick walk, even though I don't know if I believe that, but um, we walk with these dogs and we really get a sense of how fast they enjoy walking. Um, there's no such thing as a dog that's too slow or a dog that's too fast because we have somebody that can potentially match that. Um, as well as pull. So for those of you that have worked with a guide in the past, you know that how they kind of help navigate you around things is that tension in that harness handle. So that's what we mean when we say pull. Some people prefer a really strong firm pull because it makes them feel confident in those movements, whereas some people kind of prefer a lighter pull. And then we also take into account the dog's size. This isn't something that we can't really adjust. So say we do have somebody that's six foot tall and we have a rather short dog, we can give them a longer harness handle um, or vice versa. If we have somebody who's rather short and the dog's quite tall, we can give them a shorter harness handle. However, we like to take size into account um, because we wanna make sure that somebody feels stable and that they can really feel that dog in harness next to them. Next is our matching meetings. So on the screen, we have a photo of a golden retriever laying on a blue and yellow rug. The dog's wearing their leather leader dog harness and looking up to the right in the photo with their mouth open. 
Um, so our matching meetings, like I said, happen, they start at the basic phase, so at about two months in, and they continue about every two to three weeks after that. Um, so the first thing that we do is we review applications. So people will apply for our programs and services at Leader Dogs for the Blind, and their application goes to our admissions committee. So this admissions committee is comprised of some guide dog mobility instructors, some certified orientation and mobility specialists, um, as well as some supervisors, some client services representatives, um, and, and just kind of a, an all-around group of people that are knowledgeable in the field. So they look over these applications and determine if somebody, it would be a good fit for our guide dog program. Once they're approved, they go on to our, what we like to call our wait list, or our aging list. So this is a list where people will sit on the list for, we like to say six to 12 months, um, but that really does depend. And I'll kind of go into that a little bit more uh, on our next slide, but the instructors then look at that list of people that are already approved. So these are people that are slated to come into class to come and get a dog from us. Now our job is to just find them the right dog. So we will start at the very top of that list. So the people that have been waiting the longest, and we will review every single person's video and application in depth. Um, during the video, we're looking at things like um, their pace and their environment. And we read through that application to really get a sense of who that client is as much as we can from a paper application anyways. Um, like I said, it goes for two to three weeks. Every two to three weeks, we relook at that list because these dogs are also changing during that time. A dog that we may have thought would have been a good match for, say, Bob, you know, after month two, the dog may have shown some things in the next month or so that we say, you know what, this really isn't the right dog for Bob. Um, so it's just something for us to kind of keep in mind as we're continuing on in their training. Um, and that also goes with our specialized environments. Say once we do think we have a dog for Bob, we like to kind of emulate what his environment might be like um, for this dog to, again, set them up for success. But what are some things that we're looking at in the client application in order to make this good match? So by this point, we really know our dogs. We're doing these blindfold routes. We're spending Monday through Friday with these dogs, really getting to know them. How much can we really learn about a client from their application? So the things that we're looking for are we're looking for their physical attributes. We're looking again for that height, like I mentioned, their build, their size, um, we're looking for their physical abilities, such as their strength, their flexibility, dexterity, their balance and walking gait is also very important. Um, not that that would ever make it so somebody couldn't get a dog, but that's just, again, one of those matching implications. We want to make sure that we can kind of practice that with the dog to set everybody up for success. We also look at the home and work environment. So what is the family and support system? What does their house or their apartment look like? Is it well put together? Is there a space for the dog? Um, what country do they live in? Because we also service people that live um, in Spain as well as Central America. Um, and like I said, Canada and the United States, of course. What city are they in? Is it a suburban area? Um, is it really busy? Um, is it quiet? What are the traffic conditions? Um, all of those things are things because, again, we like to look at our dogs. We want our dogs to be comfortable. So say somebody lives in New York City, we want to find a dog that not only 
feels comfortable working in that environment, but also just enjoys it and thrives. Because we would hate to put a dog that, say, prefers a smaller city into New York City for those eight to 10 years. Um, we want to make sure, just like it's going to be beneficial for the client, that it's going to be a beneficial work environment for that dog. Next, we also look at the expected workload. So what are the number of routes? What are the length of the routes? How much settling is involved? Um, and again, the complexity of those routes. So we understand that everybody's lifestyle is very different. There are some people that are very go, 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 and they get on a subway and they go to their job and then they get on an airplane and they travel to a conference. And then we also have people that walk around their neighborhood. They go to their church meetings. Perhaps they walk to the grocery store. They go to some social events. So again, we really want to make sure that it's something that that dog is going to enjoy as well. Um, as far as settling, if we know a dog's going to be going to college, we want to make sure that it's a dog that can, yes, work really well, but also can settle for those three-hour college classes, of course. We also look at the orientation and mobility skills. So for those of you that have worked with a dog in the past, I'm sure you know that keeping up those orientation and mobility skills are super important. That's why on our admissions committee, we do have somebody from our orientation and mobility department because we want to make sure that you can travel independently and safely with that long white cane before we give you a dog. Because unfortunately, a dog is not a fix-all. You can't just pick up that harness handle and tell your dog forward, find Starbucks. They're not going to be able to do that. You as the handler need to know where Starbucks is in order to kind of tell that dog which directional cue you're looking for. Um, we also look for any residual vision. At Leader Dog, we have the legal blindness standard for getting a guide dog. However, some people often think, you know, oh, I'm, I'm legally blind, but I still have quite a bit of remaining vision. So I, I don't really, there's other people that need a dog more. That is absolutely not the case. And that's not at all what we believe. These dogs, as long as your vision is impacting your travel, we believe that this can be of benefit to you if you're interested in it. So as long as you are legally blind, um, we still look at things like your functional remaining vision, your stability of your vision. We also look into your hearing. So we have a fantastic deaf blind program at Leader Dogs for the Blind, where we have one of our GDMIs is also a certified sign language interpreter and can do tactile sign or just American sign language um, and work kind of a one-on-one -on -one with somebody um, that may be both deaf and blind. Um, we also look into preferences. So who am I to tell somebody what type of dog they should have for the next eight to 10 years? Some people have a preference on the dog's height. Some people have a preference on their size or their breed if they want a Labrador or a Golden Retriever. Um, those are currently the two breeds of dogs that Leader Dog is using, the Labrador Retriever and the Golden Retriever. We're also doing crosses of those as well. We recently stopped breeding German Shepherd dogs, um, but we still do have a few that are making it through their way um, in the program, still in puppyhood. Um, some people have a preference on their dog's sex or their dog's color. Um, perhaps somebody has a little bit of remaining vision and they can see a black dog against their white carpet better. Um, also, people have past experiences and lifestyle choices that kind of help them determine what type of color of sex of breed of dog that they might want. So we, of course, take that into account. 
Um, we also look at their history of work with guide dogs. Are they a client that's never had a guide dog before? Are they somebody that has those skills already kind of ingrained in them and that muscle memory? Um, what kind of support level might they need during class? And then we also look at special considerations such as any physical considerations or perhaps uh, cognitive if they have a traumatic brain injury, um, if they need their dog trained on the right side as opposed to the left. Um, similar to our deaf-blind program, we also have an adaptive services program who are instructors who work with somebody who might just need that little bit more one-on-one -on -one time because they have something else, um, can, some other type of special consideration to kind of take into account. Next is our final matching meeting. So on the screen, we have a photo of a yellow Labrador sitting, staring up into the camera. The mouth is wide open um, and we've got, it must be fall time because there's a bunch of red and yellow leaves spread behind them. So at LeaderDog, we look at all of those things that I had just mentioned about the client's application. And we also look at what training model they're signed up for. So we have a few different training models because we understand that not everybody can come to class or come to our facility in Rochester Hills for three weeks. Um, so that is called our class model where people come in. We fly people again from all over the United States and Canada to come to our campus. But again, we understand not everybody can do that. Perhaps people can't take three weeks off of work or perhaps they're on dialysis or they're a primary caretaker for somebody. So we also have our delivery model. And that's a 10-day model where a guide dog mobility instructor or a field representative will bring a dog to your home environment and work with you for 10 days. So it is a shorter amount of time, but that's because it's one-on-one, -on -one, where, whereas when you're in class, it's a three-to-one ratio, so three clients to one instructor. We also have our flex model, which I kind of say is the best of both worlds. Um, it's a model for somebody that perhaps can come to class but not stay for the entire three weeks. So they come for one and a half to two weeks. And then that last week, an instructor goes home with them to their home environment and really helps transfer those skills to their home. So again, some of the things that we are focusing on um, you know, is trying to find that best match for that client. And once we feel that we have solidified that match, and of course I put a caveat with this, is once every client comes to class and we meet them, our matches can of course change a little bit. Um, but then we would call and we would invite that client to come to class. So we would look at their training model. We would look at all of the um, considerations in matching. And then we would call them and say, hey, we feel we have a dog for you. Are you available to come in you know, August for a class. If they say yes, we sign them up. And about a week before class, their guide dog mobility instructor will call them and just go over anything else that they might want to tell us. Um, so we can get, like I said, a lot of information from that application, but there's something to be said about that one-on-one -on -one conversation where I get to hear directly from somebody's mouth exactly what they're hoping for um, prior to them coming into class. So what about once the client comes into class? Because it'd be great if I could say that matching is done the day we invite somebody to class. But of course, that's just what we know from the phone and from the application. So once we get to know people in person, some of the things that we're looking at is their pace. And I'll go more into this on our, our next slide as well, but their pace. We understand that we saw it in the video, but in person, sometimes paces can change. Perhaps on the day of the video, it was kind of icy. So they're going a little bit more slowly and being a little more tentative. 
Um, perhaps they were working one of their older, you know, their old guide dog who had slowed down. Um, so we really look at their pace once they come into class. We really talk about the expectations of a guide dog, what their expectations are. We look at their physical ability to handle a dog. Um, again, we really talk about those preferences. We try our absolute best to make sure that we are matching those preferences. Um, it doesn't always happen, but if it's not going to work out, we of course will make sure to have that conversation with a client prior to inviting them to class. So for example, if they have their heart set on a yellow lab and you say, hey, I have a yellow lab golden retriever mix that I think would be perfect. That's of course something we would say prior to them coming into class. We would hate to, to kind of trick somebody into coming. Um, and then lastly, we also look at their personality. Everybody is different, just like every dog is different. Some people are more affectionate. Some people are a little more stoic. So we look at what that person might give to their dog. And we also look at what the dog might want in order to be a successful working guide. Next, we do Juno. So what is Juno? Juno is basically our first two days of class when you're on campus, where the instructor, the guide dog mobility instructor, holds that harness. There's no actual dog involved. And we really practice not only learning skills that you're going to be using with your dog, but also helping the instructor kind of learn more, again, about each client. So we do good Juno. And during good Juno, we practice pace and pace control. We also practice our hand signals. So we use hand signals for forward, left, and right. And we also go over our verbal cues. So again, that forward, left, and right, our halt, our find the curb, um, our left, left, follow the shoulder. So we really practice all of those to see everybody's learning style and to really get an idea of, okay, I thought they walked faster than they did, but when I'm holding that harness handle, they're kind of walking a little bit slower. That's something to kind of keep in mind. The next day is what I like to call bad Juno. So it, again, it would be great if these dogs were robots, but they're not. Um, so they're still distractions. So how does somebody handle a distraction? What's their reaction time? Are they able to grab that leash? Are they able to do a timeout? Um, and again, this is all done with a fake dog. So the instructor takes that harness and kind of jiggles it as if they're distracted. Um, how about straight line travel? Is the person able to kind of help correct that dog if that dog really veers off one way or the other? Um, and then again, like I said, reaction time. Um, how quick are they to be able to grab that leash? Now, we also understand that for somebody who is perhaps a new client, that's going to be something that just takes time to learn as well. Um, but it's something good for us to kind of keep in the back of our mind as we're trying to finish matching. Once we've done both good and bad Juno, the clients are obviously on campus, we are getting ready for dog issue. So by this point, we had our initial match prior to inviting the client to come to class. Once we invited the client to class, we had that phone call about one week earlier where we really got to know them a little bit better. It may have changed our match a little bit. It may not have. And then once the client comes to campus, we have those two days of Juno that, again, really help us determine if we like the match that we have or if we want to change it around. Luckily, we usually have, I don't want to say extra dogs, but usually we have, you know, 15 dogs for a 12-person class, for example. So there are some dogs that are... Um, that we were not planning on issuing just because we didn't think we had a match, but we can kind of move those pieces around. Again, that's why it's kind of a fun mind puzzle that the instructors like to play um, to find that perfect match. 
Next comes dog issue. So dog issue is the giving of the new guide to the client. So you may think as a guide dog mobility instructor that you have made a fantastic match, but there are some things to note. And this is something that you learn the longer that you've either been a guide dog user or a guide dog mobility instructor is it may not seem right from the start. So right when you give that dog that dog is going to be coming from our canine development center. That dog is going to have a lot of energy. Um, you know, it, it may not be what you completely expected in a guide dog or this idea that you've kind of built up in your mind, but that's okay because it takes time to build that bond. It takes seven to 10 days to really form that bond. During those seven to 10 days, that dog might be looking for its instructor, somebody that's been working with for the last four months and not necessarily looking at its new handler. There's also successor dog difficulty um, for those that have had dogs in the past. It sometimes for some people can be very difficult to kind of transition to a different dog, um, a dog that perhaps is a year and a half when the dog that you may have just retired is 10 or 11 years old. Leader dog does have a great transitions program um, where you can kind of sit down and talk about these hardships and difficulties with people that have gone through it as well, which is a fantastic program. And then as a GDMI, it's also really important to listen to the client's concerns and validate these concerns. Although as a GDMI, you might think to yourself, give it time. You think it'll even out, give it time. You want to make sure that everybody knows that you truly are listening to their concerns if they do have any about the dog. And then we also have the what ifs. So what if it doesn't work out with that dog that you gave them? So what if a week into class or, or 10 days into class, you're looking and you're going, yeah, the pace is just wrong, or this dog is just too strong. That's where those dogs that we didn't issue, those other three dogs out of that 15 can come into hand, um, come in and to help us. Um, so if it's not working with one of the dogs in class, we do have the opportunity to look at other dogs that are also class ready to see if we have a different match. Um, if we don't, then of course that's a, an individual basis and we would talk to the client about that, whether it be they go home and we bring a dog to them in their home environment, um, you know, or they wait and they can come back and get a different dog. So again, that's the whole, it's an art, not a science thing. Um, we'd love to say we get it right hundred percent of the time, but I don't think any organization can say that. Um, what if the client doesn't want to continue with the dog? So this doesn't happen very often, but on very rare occasion, we will get somebody that says, you know what, either this dog is not right for me, um, or I don't think a dog at all is right for me. I thought I wanted a dog and I don't. Again, those are concerns that the guide dog mobility instructor will listen to um, and work with on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and then what if something happens to the dog? So what if in class, all of a sudden the dog just says, you know what? this is not for me. And they start, you know, showing displacement behaviors. They start kind of acting out. Again, that's where those extra dogs or those dogs that we didn't issue that first time can really come in to help. Next, I'm just going to talk really quickly about um, some of the stuff that we have on our website. Um, so we do have virtual learnings on the website and we have a unique matching process webinar on there that goes over a lot of this information in great detail. Um, so our virtual learning is kind of separated into four different sections. We have an area for prospective clients, which is depicted by a lady wearing a black leader dog face mask and holding a white cane next to her. And this has things like, 
Is a guide dog right for me? Guide dog readiness. It talks about the unique matching process. Um, next, we have our graduate section, which has a photo of a young woman sitting on a bench next to her yellow lab in harness, smiling at the screen. And in there, we actually just recently added what to do if I'm traveling without my leader dog, um, you know, how to prepare my home for a leader dog upon graduation. Underneath that, we have family and friends, which has four individuals sitting on a couch with one young lady sitting on the floor with both a black lab on one side of her and a yellow lab on the other. Those are actually her brother and sister's dogs. I gave both of them their guides. Um, and in there, it has family testimonials. You know, where can I stand when, when my person is walking? You know, how can I be of a good support to them? And then lastly, we have a blind rehab professional section where we have a photo of a certified orientation and mobility specialist walking with a yellow lab and two GDMIs on her left. And this is where we have free continuing education credits for blind rehab professionals. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about is our podcast. So we have a podcast. We are just getting ready to enter season five. And on the screen, we have three cartoon dog heads, a golden retriever, German shepherd, and yellow, or well, and a Labrador, I should say. Um, and they all have those big kind of sound booth headphones on. Underneath, it says taking the lead, and it's underlined by a long white cane. And on here, we do things such as talk to clients and volunteers, um, really anybody that impacts or has been impacted by leader dogs for the blind. Um, and you can listen to that anywhere podcast stream. We also just started putting those on YouTube. And then lastly, I just have our logo again, Leader Dogs for the Blind, with our website, leaderdog.org, and our phone number, 888-777-5332, written on the screen. If you guys have absolutely any other questions, um, you want to go more in depth on this, anything at all, um, feel free to check us out on our website or to give us a call. Oh, Alyssa, I want to thank you so much. In a minute, we're going to open this up to questions. Um, and I'd like to suggest to people that the questions not be of a personal nature, like saying hi to some other trainer at, at leader, um, et, et cetera, et cetera. Something that would be of interest to everybody should be the focus of the question. I. I do want to ask a first question myself. What if you there's a great match between the dog and the client and then they go home and there's something in the family environment or dynamic, um, maybe not intentional, but that's somehow undermining the matching process between the handler and the dog? Uh, do people contact you and uh, to maybe help out, uh, sort of mediate and give yeah. advice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are here to help in whatever capacity that might be for the entire working life of that dog. So something that we do get oftentimes is, you know, somebody goes home and they say, oh man, my dog is really listening to my spouse or following my spouse around a lot more, you know, than me. 
that's something that first we'll start saying, okay, you know, are you the one who's feeding the dog? Are you the primary one who's playing with the dog? And if all of those answers are yes, um, you know, we'll still work with you, you know, any way that we can to kind of make that transition a lot more seamless and make sure that everything is going smoothly. But yeah, we are there for the entirety of that dog's working life to help out however we can. Thank you. Deborah Armstrong. I think this question is relevant to all senior citizens in the group. So first of all, I'm a really experienced handler. I've been using guide dogs from GDB since um, I was 19 years old and I'm in my mid sixties. So I'm a very experienced handler and I have only positive things to say about GDB, but I've had a problem with all seven dogs that has only become an issue since I've developed some arthritis and tore my ACL. And what I'm asking you is how much do you train for this? My problem is that if my right knee drops off a curb, it just collapses. I can't cope. I mean, I fall over. And I haven't had any really bad falls with this dog. I had a couple of my last dog because uh, when I was younger and more athletic, if I dropped my right foot off a curb, I just put it back up on the curb. Sure. Older and stiffer. And you guys are doing so much positive training, encouraging them to find the curb that sometimes they sidle up to the curb to the point where your foot drops off. Um, So, you know, similar to GDB, um, you know, it's not anything we can't say that we have any sort of like a, a stability dog. However, knowing that that's a concern of yours and something that um, you know, if your right foot kind of steps off, something that that instructor can really specialize or focus on is really trying to hug that left edge. Um, so I'm a big fan of a left side traveler because left side generally keeps us safe from, from, you know, twisting those ankles off of the sidewalk. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's anything in particular that we can do that if you do step off the sidewalk to help, but we can really try and focus on magnetizing that dog to that left edge. Um, and similarly, coming up to curbs, we can work on, you know, helping that dog that we know is going to be a good match for you stop a few steps before you get to that curb. So then you do have to use that footwork, but at least you know that you are safe and you're not going to overstep that curb. So that just kind of goes to that positive reinforcement training and specialized training per, uh, per individual. Next, we have Deborah Kendrick. So, um, Alyssa, first of all, that was just an absolutely fabulous presentation. And I have been sort of um, arguing with myself over whether or not to, to come forward with this question, but it's been really troubling me. So I'm going to. I am a longtime guide dog user. I have had eight dogs over the years, most of them from Guide Dogs for the Blind. And my college roommate and longtime best friend lives in the Rochester Hills area. And all the men in her family, her father, her brothers, her husband, they've all been immersed in Lions Club and given tons of money and done fundraisers for leader dogs. So every time they see me, they're like, did you get a leader dog yet? Is that dog from leader? Is that dog from leader? And I always have to sheepishly say, I'm sorry, I get my dog somewhere else. Well, um, six years ago, I began a whole new, I due to illness and a lot of other things, um, my mobility changed. And so I had to very abruptly return my latest guide dog. And I've been without a dog for six years. And 
due to physical therapy and hard work and so forth, I'm finally walking again. Um, I used to say I was the fastest walker I knew, and now I'm the slowest walker I know, but I'm walking. And I was visiting my friend in October, and she said, "Um, why don't we just go by Leader Dogs and check it out? And I thought, yeah, this might be the time, because they, I thought, and it sounds like you're saying this, they deal with people with extra issues like mine. So I called Leader Dogs, and I spoke with someone, and it totally crushed my spirit and my day because what she said to me was what if you can't walk without a mobility device we can't work with you we only work with blind people so Mm -hmm. um what I want to know is did I just get somebody who was having a bad day did you change your policies in October or is there some minor adjustment to what you will and will not take on in a client sure well, first yeah. off, I, I sincerely apologize for that. Um, it, it really does depend. We don't train people, for example, who are using wheelchairs um, with guides or walkers with guides because we do need um, you know, that hand to be holding that harness handle. However, right. if somebody is either a slow walker or is using a stability cane, we can absolutely right. work with somebody who's using a stability cane. Yeah, that's what mine is. It's 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 called a hemi walker, and maybe that threw her off. But I explained that it was a one-handed device, and that I use a long white cane. Yeah, absolutely. That would definitely be something um, that our adaptive services team could work with. Um, And our adaptive services team is our same team as our deafblind team. Um, They just kind of work with everything, so it would kind of be you know nice as well. Because I know that you mentioned some hearing loss. And the and deaf blind work, do you actually teach people? I, I've done some teaching and I had a few deaf blind clients with dogs, but they never left home. Do you actually teach deaf blind people to walk in the community with their dogs? Or oh, absolutely. Just... Okay. Okay. Yeah, abs- cool. it's, it's honestly, it's the exact same program as our, um, just our guide dog class, except it's a smaller ratio just to allow a little bit more time. We might do things like use crossing uh, signs instead, crossing cards, sure, sure. Um, you know, but absolutely no. Walk, going to the mall, going to the store, walking around the neighborhood. Absolutely. Oh, okay. oh fabulous. Okay. Thank you. Next is Jean Marie Moore. I'm wanting to know if you still have the winter wimp program in Naples, <laughs> Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, you know, we are not, we do not currently have one planned, um, but that's not to say that we won't have another one planned in the future. I know post COVID, we haven't really brought that back yet, um, but that's not to say that we won't. Okay, next we have a phone number. Oh my goodness, what a wonderful presentation. I, I love the good Juno, bad Juno. Yeah, um, <laughs> thanks. And I appreciate you confirming that some people with varying degrees of vision can still work successfully with a dog as long as you know that the vision is really not so high that it truly would interfere with the dog. Because t- there are times that I've been yeah. roundly criticized for getting a dog. You're taking a dog from somebody who needs one. And, yeah, and absolutely like, not. Yeah. And especially since I've worked successfully with a dog okay. since 1982. But anyway. Do you have a question, um, with the height, Vanessa? With, with, with the height issue. Um, yep. I've, um, 
have you had situations though where somebody who's short um, needs a taller dog, and in my case for balance, mm -hmm. and you discovered that the shorter handle really wasn't, you know, perfect because of the dog's firm pull. I've gone from one length to finally the next to the longest length available, which works. So do you make adjustments like that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our harnesses are made in-house um, and we have harness handles that go from 14 inches all the way to 22. The main reason I say we would go with a short one is because the longer the handle, the farther behind the dog you're going to get. Um, but if that's something that works for somebody and they are still walking successfully and it's something that they say, you know, hey, this short handle really isn't working. Can I try a longer one? Absolutely. It's something we would try. If the guide dog instructor didn't feel it was safe for some reason after seeing it, um, you know, that would be a conversation. But absolutely, we can adjust up until the day you graduate. Thank you. Okay, next is Viola Benson. Hi, Viola. Hi, everybody. Um, I have two issues. I've had cancer in the last three years. I've had four dogs. So I used to be a really good handler because, you know, my shoulders and hands and everything got stronger. But now um, I'm, I'm dealing not with the walking part, but with the upper body, um, shoulder and arm strength. Sure. Would I still be able to have a dog that I wouldn't have to correct so hard or um, have problems um, keeping them under control with maybe a leader, uh, sure. gentle leader, gentle leader or something like that. Would yeah, that be possible? Absolutely. So all of that is just a matching implication. Um, you know, we've had people before that don't have any use, for example, of their right arm and they have that dog in the left and they still don't have very good um, strength in that left side. So there's no grabbing of that leash with that right arm. And there's very minimal correction given with that left. <laughs> Um, for example, and they are absolutely able to work with a dog. Like I said, it's that matching implication. So it might just take a little bit longer to find that right dog that might be both a, a very gentle dog and a very honest dog that wouldn't necessarily require any sort of correcting. Um, but absolutely, just another matching implication. Agnes, go ahead. Hi. Um I have a question about your harnesses. Do you mm -hmm. make special harnesses that would uh, help people if they had any balance issues? Uh, we currently do not do any sort of, of balance uh, stuff with our harnesses. However, you know, we like I said, we do make our harnesses on our own. So if there's something that you can think of that might help you on a harness. It's something that we can definitely try to make, um, but no promises on that for sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Beth? Hi guys, absolutely terrific presentation. Thank you and thank you GDUI. My question concerns uh, stopping with a dog. And I was at Leader many, many years ago. And at that time, you guys taught something called breaking stride, which is really how sighted people stop. And, and I guess just about everybody else, if you're just walking naturally, you kind of slow down and then stop. It's not just bam, stopping at, at the curb. And I have a balance issue. So that would really be something to consider. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Next, we have Terry Turlow. Thank you. Um, Bear with my laryngitis. 
my question is that our population is aging. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking for myself, I will be 71. And there are a number of gait and balance issues that occur for many of us as, as, as we age. Would you uh, speak to some of the uh, changes in training or issues considered as you as your class gets older and older? Sure. So like I said, at this point, we're not necessarily doing anything, um, you know, with balance in particular. However, we are using that positive reinforcement. We are um, working on kind of adjusting dogs' paces as well and understanding that perhaps, a, a, I don't want to say a super slow pace because oftentimes a dog that's too slow can kind of inhibit our balance and, and that can kind of make it more difficult. But just a nice, slow, consistent pace is something that we can reward for um, if that's something that's going to help somebody's balance. Um, again, we're also working with, if you need that stability cane, we absolutely can now work with you with a dog um, when you have that stability cane. But as far as balance at this point, we haven't done anything necessarily in our training um, to kind of accommodate that. Um, it's again, more of kind of looking at each individual person and each individual dog um, and trying to just make it a, a solid match with that. Sorry, I don't know okay. if that really answers it, but. Okay, next is Debbie Dieterich. Etheridge. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, I don't have a question. Um, I just have a comment. Um, I was there in October for the orientation and mobility program, and it's mm -hmm. a wonderful program. Um, I didn't want to leave. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, People ask me here, well, why aren't you going to your, you know, McDowell Center or somewhere here? And I'm like, because I can go there and get one-on-one. -on -one. I hadn't had any official mobility training in a long time, and I just wanted to brush up course. So, um, yeah. it's a great program. You know, they work with you one-on-one. -on -one. They talk to you and ask you what you want to do about your goals. So, I would just encourage anyone. Um, to uh, try out the program. And I'm definitely planning on stopping by the uh, leader dog booth uh, at the upcoming ACB convention. Thank you. Oh, that'll be great. Thank you. Hey, next is Alice Massa. Right, thank you. And thank you, Alyssa, for a truly outstanding presentation and for your being such a wonderful representative of leader dog school. Uh, having a leader dog for 33 and a half years, four leader dogs for 33 and a half years and still working extremely well with my fourth. In the back of my mind, I still wonder about that six to 12 month waiting period. Mm -hmm. and I am wondering if one is most willing uh, to work in a class that is in January, February, or <laughs> going during the holiday you know, that period near the holiday season, does that help one to perhaps be closer to that shorter side of the waiting period? Sure. So the waiting period is such a hard thing. The, the six to 12 months is our generic, but there's so many things that go into that. Yes, if you're willing to come when it's snowy and cold, 
um, because we do have a lot of people that say, you know, I only want to come when it's warm out. Um, so that might move you a little bit quicker, but also the number one thing we're looking for is, is that match. So as much as I would love to say, oh, I'm sure you can come in, you know, in three months, we have to make sure we have a dog in that three months for you to come in for. So if you're open to preferences, so if you're not really saying I only want a male black lab, if you say I'll take whatever type of dog, that will shorten your wait time for sure. Um, also just your travel abilities, you know, if there's anybody that has any sort of extra special considerations that can add a little bit more time, such as balance, um, or limited use of one side or the other, um, that can add more time. Um, and then again, like you mentioned, coming in around that January, February, those are usually our hardest months to fill. Um, understandably <laughs> we're in Rochester Hills, Michigan, it's cold. Um, but if you're willing to come in, then that can shorten your time as well. But, but it's hard to give an exact, um, but like I said, keeping preferences open and time of year open will, will shorten your time for sure. Thank, Thank you. you. And I would think too, the summer, you're getting more students that and that's it, yeah. want to go in the summer. And I have yeah. to say my very first leader dog I got in 1965. So I, I have a real sweet spot for um, <laughs> leader dog. Uh, Jean Marie Moore. Hi, do you teach your puppy raisers to leash, have them leash relieve their dogs? Yes. So we do all, we call it parking um, or relieving in that sense. And yes, they're all taught to relieve on leash. And that is something that we teach um, when our clients come to class, how to kind of find when the dog is relieving themselves and how to obviously pick up after that. Sorry about that. Um, as a follow-up to that previous question, when the puppy raisers are parking the dog, um, do you also encourage the puppy raisers to touch the backs of the dog so that mm -hmm. people with less vision or no vision know the dogs either are wanting or chewing? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, yes, not necessarily, you know, right when they get that puppy and the puppy is, is still learning to potty train. Um, but once that dog is reliably going outside, yes, we teach them to feel so they know if they're going one or two. Okay. And the instructors also practice that um, during the four months of training. Deborah Armstrong okay. has her hand up. Yes. Yeah. How much of my uh, GDB muscle memory would I have to unlearn to get a dog from leader? I'll back. I'm back on me. Sure. Um, honestly, it, it not much. A lot of what the schools do are similar. And Leader Dog also operates under the mindset of we understand that muscle memory is a hard thing to break, especially somebody that's had, you know, six, seven dogs. Um, so we, although we may teach something slightly different, if when you come into class, you're using, say, a hand signal um, or a word that isn't one that we necessarily use, as long as it's not confusing the dog, we'll work with you with that hand signal or with that cue. Um, so it, it's very common for people to go from, you know, organization to organization. Um, and again, we work with everybody, uh, you know, if it's nothing that's detrimental to the team, you're more than welcome to, of course, keep using whatever it is you're doing. I still once in a while after all these years, it's been safe fooey. I was just uh, going to say, are you going to say fooey? <laughs> we, we still hear that. Yep. <laughs> Agnes, you're up first. Hey, I, 
I started with Leader Dogs in 1983 after transitioning from, you know, another school. And when I had to learn their differences in training techniques, the trainer was very patient, you know, with me and um, that helped a lot. And and that's a good thing because, you know, sometimes it takes time to um, make that transition. And I'd also like to quickly add that even during that time, they were working with people who had to use support canes and they trained a gentleman in my class and um, what they had to do was to alter the procedure they were having us use when we got to the curb to locate the curb and then, you know, to go on across the street. And it was very interesting to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Maria Christick, she hasn't um, spoken yet. Hi, Alyssa. I am a leader dog graduate. I've got my second leader dog here and as well as my first to now my retired leader dog. Um, so I'm wondering, um, it, it's such an individual process and such a takeaway from what I'm uh, hearing you talk about. But I'm just curious at a macro level, is there some kind of trend that you've noticed in client requests or client needs overall? Something that's, you know, surprised you uh, in terms of a you know, more recent uh, change that you've had to account for when matching? Um, Honestly, it's a great question. Honestly, in my 11 years, I haven't really noticed much. Um, You know, I know that when I started, we were, yes, still using positive reinforcement, but we're now using it for a lot more things, um, which I think can help us kind of individualize that training a little bit more. But there's not one, I would say, thing that, that people are requesting. Um, I am noticing, you know, of course, with an aging population, like we were talking about earlier, um, dogs that perhaps are not quite as as strong in harness um, and those, you know, mod plus slash fast dogs. Um, Some people definitely still walk that pace, but I would say that a little bit slower, a little bit more gentler of a dog um, is kind of preferred, um, but not necessarily requested. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I've definitely noticed that you know, uh, greater integration of the positive reinforcement from 2011 to 2022 when I. Exactly. That. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I guess I'm in the minority. I've got a strong, fast walking little girl. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Next is uh, Deborah Kendrick. Okay. Thank you. I have two easy peasy factoid questions. Uh-huh. One is. Um, because I must have missed the part where you were talking about the orientation and mobility program, but I've heard a couple of people refer to it. So I want to know how long that program is and if it's on the Leader Dog Campus. And the other question is about obedience taught to puppy raisers. One issue that I've had over the years that's varied from dog to dog to dog is when you say come. Some have been wonderfully taught to like put their nose in the palm of my hand. That's like utopia. But others, you know, they come and they circle around. And if you have no vision, it's like, hello, where are you? So I just, I wonder about that. So there's my two questions. Thank you. 
Perfect. Um, so for orientation and mobility, it's one week long. It averages about 25 to 30 hours of one-on-one -on -one instruction. Generally, yes, it does take place on our campus in Rochester Hills, but we are also now offering in-home orientation and mobility. I don't know if anybody knows Barry Stafford, um, but he is an orientation and mobility specialist from Texas who works with Leader Dog, and he travels around the United States and Canada for people that might not be able to come to campus. Um, and then as far as the obedience, that is something that our puppy raisers work on, but it's also now something that our instructors really focus on as well. Um, I know with our deafblind program, they use a lot of whistle recall as well um, to get the dog to come to you. Um, but with that positive reinforcement now and the puppy raisers teaching the touch uh, cue, we're getting a lot better with, you know, telling our dogs to come, the dog's coming and kind of touching your hand to alert you that they're exactly right in front of you. Jean Marie Moore. Hi, thank you so much for answering all these questions. I <clears throat> I have um, a lot of, I was trained in 83, uh, 84, and I was trained to use leash corrections as the way to go and stuff. And my um, experience from what I've read about positive reinforcement is you really have to make eye contact with the dog to make it work. And that's been my primary um, hesitation about this. Can you talk a little about that? Thanks. Sure. So yeah, I um, that's not personally something that I've heard before, um, or or that leader dog you know uh, practices um, as far as making the eye contact. Um, I will say that on top of doing leash corrections, we've now also started introducing something called a timeout, um, which I know that some organizations do use as well. That is basically just a, a pause from work. And there's actually no eye contact at that point, um, which is more of kind of a punishment to the dog than giving that eye contact. Um, so that's not necessarily something that I've heard um, in training before. Okay, and we have um, Vanessa once again. Uh, very quickly, um, have you ever had a handler who first started working a dog on the left, ran into a mobility issue and needed a dog on the right, and were you successfully able to retrain a dog that started on, on the left to work on the right? Um, it's definitely something that we would try and work with. Um, I can't, you know, every situation is different. I personally haven't experienced that. Um, I did have one client who I trained on the left and then their dog was already eight years old by the time they needed the dog on the right. So at that point, we just decided retiring would be more ideal in that situation. Um, but that is something that our field representatives or a guide dog mobility instructor could work on. Um, and what would most likely happen in that scenario is we would bring the dog back to campus, do some training with the dog yeah. and then return the dog. So it's not yeah, out of yeah, the question. Yeah. I just haven't done it in my in my 11 years. Yeah, thanks. Yep. If anybody has any other questions or anything comes up, um, you know, don't hesitate to to reach out to Leader Dog in general. It's usually myself or Leslie Hoskins, who is a certified orientation and mobility specialist, um, as well as our outreach services and community engagement manager that will answer kind of all of your questions. Thank you, Diane and Herbie, too. Yeah. Okay, Thank you're you, welcome. Everyone. Bye bye. And thank yeah. you all. Bye.